Hey everyone, welcome to the How They Made It podcast, the show that's dedicated to helping you make it in the world of fabrication. I'm your host, Jeremy Cross, and this episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by Sawblade.com. No middleman, no markup, no problem. Sawblade.com, go direct. Today I'm joined by Jack Cerciara. Jack is the owner of Salish Sea Woodworks. He is a furniture maker based in Seattle, and you can see his work at Salish Sea Woodworks uh, on Instagram, as well as SalishSeaWoodworks.com. Jack, man, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Got a chance to, to chat. I'm excited. Um, yeah, listen to some of the other podcast episodes, so it's kind of cool. I saw some familiar faces, so uh, excited to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, cool. Well, usually just kind of like to start at the uh, the beginning with these. Um, kind of where'd you where'd you grow up and, and what were you into as a kid? Uh, so I grew up, kind of moved around. I grew up like when I was really young back in uh, New York, uh, moved to New Jersey. Then my parents got, my mom got transferred out to Arizona. So kind of from when I was like nine or 10 in Arizona up through high school, uh, I was there, went to college in Ohio, and then made my way out here for graduate school, actually. So uh, I went to the University of Washington for graduate school and started that in 2008 and been loving the area ever since. Got married, had a young, uh, young baby now, and uh, so making a life here in Seattle. That's awesome. Yeah, so, so staying away from the center, man. You're just uh, you're on, the, on the coast either way. Yeah, what, what, did you, uh, what, what did you go to uh, grad school for? Uh, so I actually got my PhD in biology. Um, I did biology as an undergraduate and then um, got really interested in physiology and went up here for, for graduate school. So I spent uh, about six and a half years at the university doing the research and then um, was another four and a half, five years for fellowships. Ah, very cool. Very cool. Okay. So kind of backing up a little bit, like as yeah. a kid, kid growing up, were you uh, into like making things at all? Like, were you playing with like tools? Like what, what would you kind of do there? Yeah. So I started, I mean, I've always been kind of super creative and tried to just, I mean, I did a lot of drawing, I remember as a kid and kind of just art in general, um, started an obsession with Legos, you know, I think a lot of, of my generation did. Um, and that continues today. I have, an, you know, still have an obsession with uh, with Legos as well. Um, so kind of just thinking spatially and constructing and building stuff. Um, my grandpa, you know, did some woodworking. My dad did a little bit of leather working, but um, you know, they kind of just did it here and there. It wasn't uh, I don't have a lot of craftsmen in my um, background as you know tradesmen as jobs. Uh, they all kind of did it a little bit as a hobby here and there. Um, and just kind of, I remember the first piece of furniture I made was in high school. Um, and it was kind of one of those things where I was just like, you know, I want to try this. I saw it, you know, in a book at the library or something like that when I was in high school. And I was like, oh, this looks cool. I'll give this a shot. And, and it um, had no training and no like mentorship. It was just like went, had my dad take me to Home Depot and bought a bunch of weird stuff like, you know, pine four by fours and, and some crown molding and kind of just nailed and screwed everything together and, and threw some really dark stain on it and thought that I, you know, it was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, from then it just kind of became uh, a little bit of a hobby. And, you know, through high school, we kind of just craft things in the backyard, you know, everything with birdhouses, the planters and those kind of little things. And then I kind of became the de facto DIY person when I was in college and in graduate school. Um, kind of like, you know, oh, we need to fix this in our house or, you know, we want to add, you know, put a table up. And there was a lot of, you know, I was a college student. You know, I, got, I was the guy who made the beer pong tables kind of thing. You know, <laughs> it was kind of like the, the DIY. And that's kind of where it, where it, where it went to. Fantastic. So, so what made you kind of um, pursue the, uh, the biology side of things instead of maybe going into the, the trades uh, after high school? Um, well, I get really excited about it. I went, I went to undergrad at, in a really small college in Ohio. 
and um, didn't really have a lot of direction coming in. I changed my major like three times, and it wasn't until, um, and this will kind of, I think, translate into why I'm in, in the trades now, is what got me excited was working outside, working with my hands. And when I took a couple classes, I think when I was a sophomore or junior in, in college, um, they were field biology classes. So it was being out in nature, working with animals, doing the research, but it wasn't like in a lab pipetting away. Um, it was out hiking around, you know, hiking miles in a day and, and being outside and working with wildlife. It got me excited and, and I switched very quickly from kind of like a pre-med route to, I want to be outside. I want to be a field biologist. And, um, and that's kind of where, you know, it ended up and kind of the next step professionally in terms of that is to kind of just like the career trajectory is to go and get a graduate degree if you kind of want to advance. In, in, in biology particularly, you're, there's very much a glass ceiling in terms of coming out with like a bachelor's or a BS or a BA. Um, and if you kind of want to advance, you need to go um, get a graduate degree. And that's kind of where I got excited. I came out here, I spent um, 10 months working in Argentina. I studied penguins as a, as a specialty. And um, yeah, it was you know, kind of something I was just really passionate about. And, um, made, you know, we could talk a little bit more about kind of why, where I made what seems like a right turn, but I think there's a lot of, um, kind of analogy with where I'm at now. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Just, just one more kind of quick question on yeah. the, the, the biology side of things. Like, was that predominantly like, uh, like grant funded projects where you're doing like research? Like what, what was kind of like the, the actual job like there? Yeah. So, um, when I was a graduate student, it was probably, it was probably 50 to 60% teaching, um, the way biology works is, particularly in graduate school, is it's kind of rare where I didn't have to take out loans or anything for graduate school. In biology, you tend to work for the university, and usually as part of that relationship, you get, you're allowed to take credits. Any employee at the university can take a certain number of credits, so that's how they, you know, we have minimal fees, but I teach, taught classes almost every quarter, um, and then the quarters I wasn't teaching, whether I was researching the field or having to do some lab stuff, uh, I was either supported on fellowships that I got. So I was, um, I got a couple of federal grants and I was a NASA fellow as well. Um, and then my advisor, uh, my, what we call it, you know, the PI or primary investigator, my mentor, she, um, had secured a very long grant that she had earmarked for supporting students. So whenever I didn't have federal or, or nonprofit funding, um, I was able to be supported under her and so I could go and travel to Argentina and, and work there and collect samples and be out there. Very cool. So that very was kind cool. of, you know, in terms of professional, that was where kind of like your, your salary comes from. Um, it was pay, you know, very, when I was in graduate school and then also as a research scientist, it was very, very low, <laughs> but, but yeah. uh, I didn't have to take out loans. And that's just what's interesting about the field of, um, we call it like general biology. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so now that, uh, uh, that hard right turn that you, that you mentioned, how, yeah. how did that come about? So yeah, I did, um, you know, six years of school, four and a half years of fellowships, everything from, I started as a research scientist in the lab that I had worked in for a few years, kind of finishing up projects and helping them. And then I transferred to uh, a biology education fellowship where we were studying uh, how do college students learn, particularly with a approach to helping um, close accessibility gaps for persons of color, underrepresented folks in science, um, 
folks coming from a socioeconomic background that's not um, you know as advantageous as you know someone like me you know a white white dude from upper middle class so it was how do we do things in the classroom to better affect those folks and help them close any gaps that existed based on no fault of their own and uh, provide the right resources and the right teaching uh, and that was really you know really rewarding and I think it's one of the things that's that mindset has carried over a lot into my business now uh, and how I approach the trades how I approach fine furniture making as well is it can be expensive as a hobby um, got power tools wood is expensive if you want to make something out of hardwood you know you're getting board foot prices and all that it's just supporting and and whether it's just being aware of kind of my my privilege to be able to do this and and then therefore supporting companies or supporting groups that give back to accessibility for folks whether it's um, you know, there's a very popular woodworker, Jonathan Katz Moses, who um, has a nonprofit arm for opening woodworking accessibility to woodworkers with disabilities. So just being able to, to, to continue that mindset uh, moving on. But uh, yeah, after five years, all that school and five years of fellowships, it was um, end of 2019, my fellowship ended. So like most fellowships, your grant money just runs out um, and you got to figure out what you're doing next. <laughs> And at that time, I had been, we had moved into our current place where I had a shop and I was kind of doing DIY stuff and that quickly transitioned to making little pieces for my home. Um, kind of really you know, diving into the fine furniture as a hobby. And it just quickly expanded into making things for friends and then acquaintances and then, oh, getting referrals from friends of friends of friends. And when my fellowship ended, I was admittedly, you know, a little burned out for having being being a student post high school for 12 to 15 years and having all this training was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to move and chase a job across the country. I'm trying to start a life here with my family and was a little bit burned out. And at the same time, I had this long backlog of projects in the shop. I was like, you know, I'm finding the same excitement that I found in science, in creating and solving problems that I don't have solutions for, challenging myself and continuing to have this lifelong student mentality, that I was like, you know, let's give this a shot. And so, you know, the and I think right at the end of 20, what, 2019, early 2020, I officially opened the business full time. And uh, it's just kind of grown very, very quickly from there. And it's been really exciting. And I'm seeing a lot uh, of the same internal fulfillment and rewards that I saw in science, I see in this, this uh, you know, being a, a craftsman uh, with the additional love of being able to work with my hands and, and having something you actually create out of nothing or out of very, you know, limited supplies into something that's beautiful and functional. Yeah, absolutely. So, so starting a business uh, late 2019, early 2020, yeah. man, could, could not have picked a better time yeah. to, uh, yeah, to do right. that. Talk to me through that. Like, well, like what, what's kind of going through your mind as kind of like the world is falling apart and you're like, Hey, I'm just going to step out on my own now. Yeah. I think that um, I was a little bit, when we talk about starting the business, I was a little bit pushed to do it because um, you know, as you know, as, as, you know, into the early parts of 2020, as kind of COVID-19 started making its way to the U.S., the scientific hiring market really drove towards, do you work in public health? Do you work in viruses? Do you work 
in uh, vaccine development. And a lot of the positions that, especially locally, that I wouldn't be applying to kind of got earmarked for later. Like, we're going to shift focuses. So it was, well, I can move somewhere I don't want to move, try and do something I don't want to do, or um, really give this exciting field, the exciting trade a shot. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was daunting. You know, we saw so many folks who were, um, you know, losing jobs and, and having all those employment problems and all the, the, the issues that come with that in terms of their own, you know, personal livelihood and they're supporting their families. Um, so it was a real challenge to be able to do that. Fortunately, you know, in the early parts when I was just kind of getting started, my wife, uh, her job was secure. So she was able to kind of, you know, really help out a lot with supporting me. And she's been amazing and, and has never wavered in her support of me building this business. Um, the challenges were, I think like any small business is finding, finding clients. First and foremost, it was establishing my brand. Um, it began early as like a general, you know, uh, gravitating towards furniture generally, but I was kind of taking any job that would come my way. And I had this mindset of like entirely growth oriented that I, even if I didn't know how to do something, I would figure it out along the way. And um, as I started to do that, I started to figure out what excited me and what I wanted to be doing and what my brand was. And my brand is super premium fine furniture, all hardwoods, um, you know, very limited use of, of premium plywood, handcrafted, one piece at a time, small production high value, high precision, uh, hand cut joinery and all that kind of stuff. So I really gravitated towards this blend of art and functionality. Um, I was fortunate that just by the way commerce works now, um, estimates, designs, you know, having an online presence. So I didn't, I still don't have a brick and mortar store. I have no plans to have one. Uh, I don't have a gallery. I make custom commissions or I have my own design line that folks can order from. But even then, it's not a buy and ship. It's, you know, order it. It's going to be eight to 12 weeks. I'll make it by hand and then I'll get it to you. So that was fortunate, I think, in the COVID-19 space because I didn't have to, I didn't have a brick and mortar store. I didn't have to worry about folks not being able to go out, visit me, shop here. And I feel very fortunate and I recognize the privilege I had to, to be in that space because folks were spending more time at home. So someone now had a home office and rather than sitting at a plastic fold-up table, they're like, well, I'd like to have something nice that fits my needs. Um, a lot of folks invested in their homes, whether they were doing remodels or whatever. And so I think the craftsman space didn't have, you know, different parts of the craftsman and trade space didn't have as much hit uh, because folks were gravitating towards, well, I'm going to be here. I'm going to remodel my bathroom. I'd rather that, you know, I want a place that's comfortable. And I think part of that went along with that. And, you know, first and foremost was keeping myself, my family and, and my clients safe and healthy. So I contracted with delivery companies that were aligned with safety practices and making sure that um, when there was any kind of interaction, there was that that relationship to to keep everyone safe and healthy um but the yeah the biggest challenge was i mean i'm in 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 the luxury goods space so there is a challenge of in, in an economic hardship era era 
I want to be a, I want people to see the value in spending more for a piece of furniture that's going to last generations while also recognizing that different economic situations exist for folks. So there was a challenge there in terms of finding clients, especially just getting my name out there. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did you go about that? Like, was it, were you a, a lot of like word of mouth? Uh, did you leverage like your Instagram? Like what was kind of like your, your strategy? Yeah. Kind of all of the above. Um, I found a lot of things that were really helpful and things that I, you know, looking back as any business startup does, you're like, well, I spent money on that and I would definitely not do that again. I certainly leveraged my Instagram. Um, I quickly had to start my own, start my own company, Instagram, not only to, to have a business brand, but to stop bothering my friends and their feed with pictures of furniture that they didn't care about. Um, but it, yeah, it started with friends of friends and, and, um, I leveraged a lot of the online resources in terms of having a really um, well-established Google business page. Um, I, haven't, I have yet to pay for ads on Google business, but if you look up Find Furniture Seattle, I'm one of the top you know, three. Um, really leveraging my online presence, having a good website that's easily, easily found, easily navigable. Uh, and then I really have leveraged the community of Instagram and I would say I've only had a handful of jobs through Instagram, um, but just building that brand and having that name out there, um, kind of more eyeballs on your brand is maybe someone's interested or maybe they have a friend and they say, hey, oh yeah, I saw this really cool table on Instagram and they can find that. But I would say most of my Instagram relationships and uh, connections are with like other woodworkers from professionals to hobbyists. Yeah. Uh, and those have been successful. What hasn't been successful is um, in my in my particular brand is something like Etsy. Um, I pay for and operate an Etsy store, but um, high end fine furniture that has a a fairly long construction time is not what Etsy really pushes forward. I probably had a handful of jobs through Etsy, um, and it's just I don't I don't I don't think that it aligns well with their brand necessarily they have they want handcrafted they want you know homemade stuff but they also want to have ships quickly ships free uh if i'm shipping a 12 person dining table i can't offer free shipping across the country you know um so i would say like that in that sense i have it to maintain that robust online presence but i don't have it as a direct revenue stream i'm just not I don't make small little things. I make a handful of like jewelry boxes and stuff, but it's not really aligned to the kind of products that sell well on Etsy. Yeah. But the big thing that I did in my first year was I went, just a quick Google search, what are the top 20 interior designers in my county? Um, and my county includes Seattle, obviously, the large, large, large city in the state. And um, I cold emailed every one of those folks and have developed relationships with a few of them where they get a 10% referral bonus. Um, and so I compensate them. They have an incentive to work with me. And also I've worked, I'm working with interior designers who have, they want to push design uh, and, and um, ideas and concepts. It's, it's really not a, hey, I saw this on Wayfair. Can you replicate it? It's, I want to come up with something brand new for my client. Um, and those clients tend to align with me in terms of what I'm, what's my target client base. And, yeah. and so every year I would say I probably do a third of my business through those connections to interior designers. 
uh, in that relationship, and that's obviously beneficial for them. All they have to do is send me an email, and they get ten percent of a, a piece, and that's that's pretty good relationship. And um, the other sixty to seventy percent is, you know, mostly Google Google searches and connections, and um, and friends of friends. Yeah. I think one of the, the, the biggest challenges kind of when you're starting out in any business is pricing strategy. Um, and I've got to believe that kind of with what, you know, lumber prices and, and wood prices were doing uh, yeah. at, at that time, like that had to have been like 10 times as challenging. Were you affected by those prices? And, and how did you go about kind of like navigating those waters? Yeah, I think um, it was kind of, it, the, the challenge for me was that those lumber prices were changing on a week to week basis. Um, Fortunately, my suppliers, and one of the things that's part of my brand is because of my science conservation background, um, I try to use 99% American hardwoods. Um, I source everything from as close to me as possible, keeping trucking, um, you know, fuel costs and carbon impact, and, and ultimately the cost to the uh, customer down a little bit. I was very fortunate that my big supplier, which is based in Oregon, you know, just 300, 400 miles away, um, didn't really have a lot of supply chain issues with their, the woods that I use, American hardwoods like walnut, maple, cherry, uh, which is probably, which is a lot of what I use. Um, so supply chain was an issue. Pricing had to be unfortunately passed on to the customer. Sometimes I just ate the cost because it was a, a dollar or two a board foot and I wanted to retain a customer relationship. Um, but it was it was changing on a week to week basis, so I kind of had to say to my customer, "Here's your estimate. It's good for ten days," um, which also think from a um, a sales standpoint was a bit beneficial. Yeah. Um, folks will say, "Okay, well, I don't know if it's going to go up or go down. I, I'm going to order this table," yeah. um, and so that was I think uh, you know an ancillary benefit. But I was fortunate that I didn't use I don't use construction lumber. Everything I use is super premium hardwood. Um, and so the, the shortages that we really saw in the lumber market were a lot with new home construction, DIYs, remodels, those kind of things. So never buying a two by four for my business, fortunately for my clients, never really had an, had an issue. Um, but yeah, and pricing is probably the still thing I would say admittedly that I am challenged with the most is, um, pricing things at balancing that line between what is appropriate for my time um, because kind of the, the lumber cost is a certainly a portion of the price of the piece but it's really the you know it could take me 60 to 80 hours to build a piece of furniture um, because I'm doing it at a high precision level and taking my, my time to make sure it's perfect um, pricing it in the way that is not as appropriate to my brand doesn't devalue my brand but at the same time is, is a fair market price. So I do quite a bit of research, um, particularly with custom projects, because that's what I do a lot of. Yeah. When you think of those kind of like premium luxury brands, mm -hmm. to be successful, like it feels like it really is all about brand. Like anybody could probably make a nice watch, like Rolex, obviously, like you're going to pay more for that name. Like yeah. what what kind of is your, your brand ethos and, and what do you think kind of like sets like your brand apart? I think it's that... Uh, it's a couple of things. You know that you're buying a piece of furniture that is designed with both traditional and modern joinery and traditional and modern techniques, taking what has worked for hundreds of years in, in the trade 
Um, and there's a reason why dovetail drawers, you can still find a piece of furniture that's three, 200 years old, um, and it's still, the drawers still work and they're still square and they still stay together. But also taking all the modern technology we have now to create things um, either in a more efficient way that ultimately helps my business or um, changes in those types of joinery and the type of construction that'll give the, cu the customer ultimately a better piece. But for my, you know, for my brand, it's knowing that um, you're getting a hand handmade here in the United States by a single craftsman. Uh, you know, it says on my website, every piece of furniture I've built, I've built from start to finish, from selecting the boards to putting on the finish. I'm the only person who's touched your piece of furniture. And as a craftsman, I'm committed to making sure that this piece of furniture is the best possible product and will last for generations. And I stand by those products. So you know you're going to get something that will last and you, you feel comfortable purchasing that piece of furniture. Um, also knowing that it's custom for what you want. You know it's made from premium materials and um, you know that if you go and buy you know, a mid-century modern dining table on Wayfair or um, at Crate and Barrel or whatever, it's likely not made of hardwood. It's likely made of veneered plywood. It's not designed to last a hundred years. And you know you're getting that premium product, but also it may not fit exactly the space you want. Uh, particularly here in Seattle, there's a wide variation of homes from turn of the century to modern townhomes. And so you may want a table that's exactly 40 inches long because that's what your little kitchen nook has. And so the ability to get exactly what you want in the premium wood you want and know that a piece is, is, is premium. And I think the, you know, the one, the, one of the best reviews, I, I, most meaningful to me at least, um, was a client I made, I made a entry table and an end table for, and I'm making another piece for him right now. And he said, you know, this is very clear that this is the line between art and furniture. And that's where my piece is kind of, um, at least my brand I want to be. Um, and so, you know, and the other, and I do think the longevity and the buying what we, heirloom is kind of thrown around a lot as a buzzword in furniture, but I kind of expressed it to my client, one of my clients. I said, you know, I want you to have this table and enjoy it and have make memories around it. And then I would love nothing more that when you send this coffee table off with your kids to college, they put empty beer cans on it and it's in their first apartment um, and it gets scratched and whatever, they're dancing on it. Like that, those, that life of that piece of furniture, that's meaningful to me. And that's ultimately what I, I'm trying to make. Yeah, that's really cool. I've got to imagine like, um, especially like custom furniture. Um, it's, it's cool. I'm sure it's really interesting cause you never make the same thing twice, but also like super challenging because again, you never make the same things, same yeah. thing twice. So uh, constantly facing new problems. What is kind of like your design process? Are you like a pencil and paper guy? Are you like a CAD software? Like what do you, how do you come up with your designs? Sure. So I have, I have for custom stuff. Um, it's a little bit different than I have a design line and I always try to have time in, and it's usually like, you know, waiting for my uh, eight month old to get a bottle at night, like staying up for a couple hours, I will doodle, you know, draw ideas and I'm trying to find time to be creative. Um, in my design lines, I even offer any one of my pieces can be customized. So I built, I have a, a sideboard, the Muir sideboard, just named after the American conservationist. I've made a, the standard one's like four feet wide standard sideboard 
I've made a really small two foot wide one for an entry table. I've made an eight foot long one that hold 20, holds 27 wine bottles. So being able to have that um, really customer focused design and take my designs and stretch them and move them to really fit them. But for making a custom design, I really I ask like I always it's always a conversation with the client. What is what is your need here in terms of functionality? Uh, what do you need it to hold? How big does it have to be? What does the space look like? Um, I often ask for, I, do, I will not replicate other designs. Uh, I won't take, hey, this, I saw this on Pinterest. Will you make it for me? Um, and that partly comes from my academic background about intellectual work. Um, someone put the time in to design a piece of furniture. It's not fair to them if I just copy it and sell it. Um, but I often ask for inspiration photos. What are, what, are the thing, what are the things you like? Do you like mid-century modern? Do you want super modern? Do you want arts and crafts? Um, what are those things? And I, and I also ask for photos of the space. What are the other pieces of furniture? Do you like that other table that you have in the room? Uh, and they may say, yes, I love it, or no, I hate it. And so that kind of informs me on the design process. And from there, um, I initially started at pencil and paper, but now I work almost exclusively in SketchUp Pro. I like to sit down and really just kind of take the general dimensions. I need a, you know, I need, it needs to be this tall. I need four drawers, each of which has to be six inches deep. And then I start to build a design around that. And I have the, the ethos that no time is wasted on design. So I don't ever charge the client until they are hundred percent happy. I will go back and forth with design changes because ultimately I want them to love the piece of furniture they're getting. Um, and SketchUp's really powerful for that because I can create you know, walnut material in that. I can have drawers that move. I can have this whole process of as close to reality aside from making a 3D model, actual physical 3D model. And so that's kind of my design process for custom pieces. And then folks will say, yeah, this is great. Or we'll go back and forth until they're really, really happy. And then we sign off and put in the queue. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, fantastic. This has been uh uh, absolutely amazing. Um, I have one more question. I was kind of like to, to end with with this this topic, but you've you've obviously achieved a, a lot of success in a very short amount of time. Um, is there something that that you've learned over that process, or a piece of advice you might give to maybe somebody who's just starting out right now, uh, who might want to kind of like follow in your footsteps? Sure. I think um, there's three things that I've learned that are really, I think they apply, actually apply to like any challenge in, in, in life or any, any worthy undertaking. Before I talk about those, just briefly, I think one is establishing your brand. If you're gonna be a generalist woodworker, that's fine and that's great. You can do lots of different things and that's what excites you. You wanna make cutting boards to tables to hanging shelves to doing custom cabinets. Um, if that's what you wanna do, that's great. I think you need to be thoughtful about what that is. If you really like doing custom cabinets and kitchens, then focus on that and be, you know, invest your time and effort in doing that really well and having that be your brand. Um, there's a reason I don't do that. I don't enjoy doing that and I don't want to do custom kitchens or cabinets. So it's not part of my brand. And I think that really, that kind of waterfalls down to price point, type of client, how do you find your clients? Um, if you're doing custom kitchens, you should contact uh, car, you know, contractors and home sales folks and realtors, all the kind of stuff. Um, but the three things I learned, I actually learned these three things from my time in, in graduate school, um, just kind of the process of being in academia. And I, 
I think they apply a lot to the myself as a craftsman and then folks who are approaching you know the trades are being a craftsman and there are three things um one is to care care about your impact care about your relationship with other people um care about what came before you and what comes after no you know truly great endeavor is born out of nothing came on the foundations of others i have mentors a lot virtually um you know just through instagram connections is um i'm inspired by them i've learned techniques and tools from them i care about what my brand will be and what i ultimately want to become as a craftsman and as a person and i care about my customers it i it affects me personally um and it's rarely happening like oh hey i've got this little scratch you know from the delivery that that matters to me it's not just like a oh well i'll just take care of it and deal with it it affects me on an emotional level because I want them and I care about them to be really happy with the piece of furniture they're getting. Um, the other one is never turn away from a problem, especially one for which you don't have a solution. Um, this comes come from my academic background. It's just kind of the experience is trying to do something that literally no one else has ever done. And that can be very challenging and it can lead you to feelings of imposter syndrome and, and, and anxiety. But if you can have the mindset that you, you have a growth mindset that it can be figured out and with enough time and research and asking people for help and um, being committed to that, even a challenging project, you can find a way to, to be successful and learn what you need to do to be um, successful at it. And that's kind of have that lifelong student mindset. Yeah. And then that kind of tailors to the last piece, which is, um, you know, having been in the room and, and I'm not you know, necessarily saying this to pat my own back, but like I've been in discussions with literal Nobel Prize winners. And one of the things that I've learned the most being around folks who are the, the, the world experts in what they do is that a true expert is knows that the more they learn, the more they know what they don't know. Um, it's, I think someone who's a faux expert thinks that I know everything. I'm the expert. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do in every situation ever. But the people who are the true experts in their field and, and true master of their domain know what they don't know. And they're excited by that. They can say like, I don't know how to turn on a lathe, but I, and I will be the first to tell you that, but I'm excited to try it. I'm excited to know that there's more to do as I grow as a craftsman to learn and grow and, and challenge myself with. And so those things I've learned and those have kind of been like my business ethos has been able to kind of keep this, this moving forward. And I think if you're just starting out and you can kind of think about what those things mean to you, you'll set a good foundation for all the other business and craftsman things that come around, come, come, um, come later, finding clients, setting up your website, you know, running your business, pricing, all those things, if you can couch them in, considering these kind of higher level questions. Um, I'll leave you with, with this quote. I'm not sure if you know the, if you're familiar with the comedian, uh, Tom Segura. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, hilarious, but he had a really, I think, poignant quote that I think about frequently in one of his stand-up specials. And it was, if you can accept that your dream will not turn out exactly the way you plan it, 
you will be more fulfilled in chasing your dream than not doing it. Um, and I'm not giving the exact quote there, but if you can pivot as you grow in your company, if you can figure out what you're interested in and even switch directions, you're going to be fulfilled by that journey and it's going to be more rewarding uh, if you can go into that mindset. Yeah, absolutely fantastic, man. I just think like how how boring would would life be if we could could learn everything there is to know about a subject, right? Like it's it's, yeah. it's cool that there's always something new. So I I, I love that. Well, man, absolutely fantastic. Um, one more time, just want to let folks know best way to to get in touch with you. Where can where can they see your work? Uh, that like it's sure. Fun. So uh, on Instagram at Sailor C Woodworks L A S I S H, um, and then my website is the same sailorcwoodworks.com. Um, you know, I, I try to be really active on Instagram and with the community. And one of the things that's kind of been a hallmark of my IG page is I try to just do stories all the time, every day, and just kind of show people what I'm doing, what the process is. And not only has that been great for the community, it's been great for customers to see their piece come to life. So yeah, I'd love to read, talk, hear from people and that's where you can find me. Awesome, man. Well, fantastic. I will uh, definitely be, be following along. Excited to see what you, uh, what you come up with. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again for, for coming on. And uh, man, thanks to uh, all of you out there for, for listening. Please be sure to also follow sawblade.com on all the social channels as well. And be sure to like, comment, and subscribe to this podcast. It really helps us out. And you'll also uh, be able to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Uh, thanks again for listening. And until next time, we'll see you.